Creative thinking can transform rescued materials into engaging, high-quality, beautiful products. Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we find out how circular approaches are better for people, planet and profit. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen. Rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll talk to entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com where you can subscribe to updates and our fortnightly edition of Circular Insights. Hello everyone and thanks for tuning in for another conversation with a circular economy pioneer. It's episode 68 and I'm in conversation with one of my first circular economy heroes, Cressy Wesling, CBE. Cressy is co-founder of Elvis and Cressy, which rescues and transforms discarded materials into innovative lifestyle products. Cressy was one of the first circular economy entrepreneurs I'd met in 2015, when I heard her tell the story of how she started Elvis and Cressy back in 2005 to rescue and transform decommissioned fire hose from the London Fire Brigade into bags, wallets, belts and other high quality products. I loved it so much that I bought my husband one of the wallets for Christmas. I'd not yet dared to invite Cressy onto the podcast, so I was very impressed when Nicole Rudolph, who joined our team earlier this year, got in touch with Elvis and Cressy after researching it for one of our case studies for the Circle Lab Knowledge Hub. Thanks, Nicole. We hear about the why of Elvis and Cressy and how the company has evolved, now collecting 12 different waste materials to transform into high-quality, durable, beautiful and engaging lifestyle products. It's a B Corp and donates 50% of the profits from its collections to charities related to those rescued materials. Cressy explains the company ethos, plus its belief in collaboration and why it's important to design a system, not just a product. So let's talk to Cressy Wesling and I'll be back afterwards to share what I took away from our conversation. Cressy Wesling, CBE, is a multi-award winning environmental entrepreneur. After first meeting the London Fire Brigade in 2005, Cressy launched Elvis and Cressy, which rescues and transforms decommissioned fire hose into innovative lifestyle products and returns 50% of the profits to the firefighters charity. The company now collects 12 different waste streams and has several charitable partnerships and collaborations across a number of industry sectors. Cressy, welcome to the Circular Economy podcast. Hi, Catherine. And I'm impressed with how Elvis and Cressy has evolved since we first met at the Institute for Manufacturing back in 2015. For those who've not heard of Elvis and Cressy, can you explain what kinds of materials you use and give us a few examples of the products that you make? Absolutely. So we have kind of a very simple business model. We do three things. We rescue, we transform and we donate. We always start by looking for niche waste problems. So these are materials that are not finding their way into traditional recycling, whether that be because they can't be recycled or because they're not being recycled effectively. 
Then we transform them into beautiful things and give 50% of the profits to charity. Our first material was London's decommissioned fire hoses, which can't be recycled because it's a nightshell rubber jacket surrounding a nylon woven core and you can't unmarry these two wonderful materials. So you can't shred it, melt it and start again. We turned that into a range of luxury goods. So this is handbags, luggage, belts, wallets, things like that. And then we donate 50% of the profits to the firefighters charity. And then we duplicated that model across, yeah, about 12, I think at any, we've done 15 materials in all, but sort of on a regular basis, I would say we're collecting 12. Mm. So can you give us a, an example of some of the other materials so that people have got a picture in their minds? Yeah, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a broad mix. So we, we collect tea sacking, which is how we make a lot of our packaging. And it's a waste that no one's really aware of because, you know, it's how tea is imported into the country. It goes directly to the tea blender and consumers don't ever see that raw material. So that, the reason that goes to waste is because you've got a four layer sack, three layers of brown craft paper, food grade paper, which is lovely and delightful and would be recyclable. If it weren't for the fourth layer, which is laminated to foil and polyethylene. And because these these paper sacks are, are tightly bonded at the top and the bottom, the entire sack gets scrapped. And what we do is collect directly from the tea blenders. In, in our case, we collect from Clipper Tea, which is a wonderful blender uh, based in Dorset. And they come to us smelling of tea, often filled with uh, the, the dregs of tea leaves. We cut those layers apart, iron them flat, and then use them for our packaging and our leaflets and things like that. We have also made uh, lanterns out of them, and I think that will be um, that will be a, a product we reintroduce as homeware in the next several months. Mm. Wow, it's fascinating, and it's and it's horrific, isn't it, to hear how complicated things that that. Um we imagine to be quite simple um, mm. and I guess I guess the foil and the um, polyethylene are relatively new introductions in the in the lifetime of tea importing to um to, to the oh UK. yes tea used to come in these beautiful wooden chests and the chest would arrive in the UK it would be emptied and it would go back on the ships to be refilled so so yes it, they used to be desirable um and reusable items and and a lot of people say to us, oh, but aren't, isn't tea imported in tea chests? And that's because at some point, one of their grandparents would have had one in the house. But no, it hasn't been that way for a very long time. And yeah, tea, tea sack, parachute silk, printing blanket, um, coffee sacks, auction banners. What are some of the other? We just got a um, life raft from the Royal Marines, which is an emergency vessel that is past its uh, sell-by date, past its health and safety life. Um, and it would be the kind of vessel that 25 people could could live in for a period of time if their proper boat had sunk. Um, but having seen it, I, I guess this is, this is why you know it's definitely a last resort and something you would want to step up into uh, from a sinking vessel rather than out of choice because it's um, yeah very 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 basic but that was a fascinating bit of uh, scrap for us to receive luckily the marines uh, took the explosives uh, from it before they brought it over but it does still have food packets in it safety lanterns a knife um, 
yeah, fascinating. We get some fascinating things here. Yeah, I can, well, I can imagine the kind of um, range of kit you'd need, you'd need on a life raft to keep you going for a few days in, in possibly uh, very inhospitable conditions. Mm-hmm. And a few years ago, you started a, a project with Burberry, the luxury fashion brand. Um, is that still going? And can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, that's that's that is still going. So we we once we got to 2010, the business started in 2005, and our first mission was the fire hose. But by the time we got to 2010, we were easily capable of recycling and reusing all of London's hose every year. So it was time for us to broaden our horizons and start thinking about another marquee waste that we could bring into the collection. And that was sort of at the same time that a saddle maker had sent us a bag of his scrap leather. So we knew that leather offcuts was also a problem. We started doing some research on it and discovered a UN report that was written in 2010 that that estimated the global leather waste issue just offcuts. So this isn't old jackets and airline seats. This is just offcuts because a cowhide is a certain shape companies cut up the, the pieces they want and the rest falls to the cutting room floor. But the UN report estimated that there was 800,000 tons of this kind of offcut being produced a year. So we're used to talking about things like single-use plastics, but this was never been used leather. And, and I just thought it's kind of criminal and we need to develop not a product for this because if you sort of cast your memory back to 2010, Nope. Some people were starting to talk about the circular economy, but people weren't designing for it. So it was still a very novel concept that only a relatively few uh, people understood. It was talked about in academic circles more than anything else. We were aware of it because the work of the work we had done with Firehose, um, we'd been you know following Ellen MacArthur's transition to this space, that kind of thing. And I said, look, let's not design a product this time. Let's design a system. Let's think about what the circular economy demands. It demands designed for deconstruction. It it wants you to make sure that the raw materials involved can be used again and again and again and again and again in multiple different guises and lives. So that was the design brief that I gave to Elvis, a sack of leather and um, some words sketched on the back of an envelope that were like shareable, swappable, DIY, um, and and in many and in many ways, this is this is definitely what we came to call our perfect product. Because Elvis, sure enough, went away, and he took that inspiration and that bag of leather, and he came up with three geometric shapes that you could cut the leather into to create whole new hides of any size that you could use for making rugs. And if you didn't like those rugs anymore, you could take them apart and make curtains. And if you didn't like those curtains anymore, you could upholster a chair, you could make a bag, you could make a doorstop, you know, kind of anything where you see leather, you could use these pieces. But not only that, let's say, let's say you do make one big rug out of your pieces. And actually you love that rug, but it gets old. What you can do is take high traffic pieces and move them to low traffic areas. So you can it dramatically extend the life of the rug? If your dog pulls out two corner pieces and you know shreds them, it doesn't mean that the rug has to die. It just means you have to call me and we'll send you two more pieces. 
So it was, it was a, I suppose it was a revolutionary new concept. And we introduced that at an event in, let's say, 2012. And then a lot of people wanted me to talk about it and speak about it at various events. And at one event in 2013, we were approached by some lovely women from Burberry who said, now this is wonderful and great. Um, would you like to work with us? We have leather offcuts and we would like to help you scale this solution. And then because they're 7,000 times larger than we are, it took uh, four years <laughs> to negotiate how we would collaborate. Um, but by 2017, we, we formed uh, a partnership between ourselves and the Burberry Foundation and, and we got going in earnest. And, and it has been a, a brilliantly successful program that has not only focused on leather rescue but also creating apprenticeships at our, at our site in Kent. And also 50% of the profits from this project are donated to Barefoot College, where we train women as solar engineers. So instead of leather going to ground, um, and I suppose what I'm always excited about this is that when you bury a ton of leather, it costs you 410 pounds minimum, just landfill cost, gate fee. Wow. If that same ton of leather comes to us, we can generally turn that into approximately a hundred thousand pounds of revenue so often in, in circular economy um chit chat we're told that spent textiles could be worth two to three thousand dollars a ton and i guess i've said stuff and nonsense to that because we've shown it can be worth a hundred thousand pounds per ton it just it's just a question of creativity it's just a question of the right solution for the right problem and certainly it has allowed us to create i think almost 20 scholarships for women to train as solar engineers fantastic so yeah it's pretty it's pretty obvious what your decision should be bury it in the ground or do all of this this good and create all of this value i think i think we all know what, to, what choice we should make yeah definitely and i bet from berber's perspective that's given them a much better story to tell than some of the press that was that's come out over the last few years about what what they were doing with some of their other other waste that they didn't want to get into the grey market Mm. and um talking about the barefoot college and the solar engineers when we were talking before you mentioned a solar forge project that came about during the pandemic yeah so this is this is a fascinating one because i'm i guess once you start having this view where problems are your raw material where, where problems are, are how you think of your next product line, then you start to see the world like that. And we had always wanted to make our own hardware, so belt buckles and, and things like that. Because, you know, for, from a luxury goods perspective, there's a few suppliers that pretty much all of the brands work with. And um, everyone in that industry says, yes, 70% of it will be recycled because metals are generally recycled. But they're they're relatively unprovable assumptions. They're just based on industry standards for recycling in whatever country you might be operating from at any given time. And I just think we wanted to do something more interesting. And at the time, I was given this absolutely incredible report that was uh, commissioned and shared by Keep Britain Tidy, which is a a, a really, um, I don't know, it's it's probably one of the most well-known environmental charities in the UK. And it campaigns for love of place and love of space and people associated with, um, you know, 
collecting rubbish and you know tidying up our parks and beaches. And the report that they commissioned had this incredible group of statistics about how much we litter in terms of drinks containers into our public spaces. It's about 32 million drinks containers a year. Around half of that are aluminium containers. And this results in the death of between three and four million small mammals a year. So it's not just the litter wow. issue, it's the little creatures like newts and shrews are crossing roads and getting hit by cars and getting stuck in cans and bottles. You know, so it's it's a it's a it's a biodiversity issue. Mm. And it just it just pissed me off, I guess. And I thought, of course, this is when everyone was talking about 3D printers. So I thought, I'll just get some 3D printer and you'll be able to chuck cans in one end and you'll be able to get belt buckles out the other end. And of course, there was one sort of weird website in America that said they had a machine that could do it. But whenever you called, there was nobody answering that phone. Um, so I called a lot of, and this is one thing I absolutely love about being in the UK. There are experts in this country in everything. So I just Googled um, journal articles written about 3D metal printing. And I called some of the professors who were researching it. And I kind of got the same response saying that that something like that metal to metal 3D printing might be possible in the future, 10 years away. And it's going to be a really expensive machine because we have 3D metal printers now, but you have to put refined metal powder in one end. So not a waste can. Mm. And the machines cost about 340,000 pounds. And I, I didn't I wasn't prepared to invest that much in in my my next crazy idea. And I thought, well, how do we do this cheaper and how do we do this? In, in, a, in a much more interesting way. And I was very lucky to have at that particular time um, run into someone who was working at the University of the Arts in London, who said, we've got this incredible program called the BFTT program where we match fashion entrepreneurs with research teams to solve certain problems. And I said, oh my God, this is incredible because I could go out and try and find R&D people to help me, but that's gonna take three years to find the right team. They just had the right team lined up and they were at Queen Mary University. And over the course of the pandemic, this incredible team, I gave them again, basically a brief on the back of a, a, a napkin and said, I want it to be cheap. It's going to be open source. We're not owning this. And it's got to be able to take littered aluminium cans and I have to be able to get hardware at the other end. And they've done it. They've, they've created this machine. We're about to bring it back. It's it's at Queen Mary University. COVID has delayed certain things because normally we would have been doing a lot more work together. Um, they would have had much more access to lab time. You know, things would have been faster, but they have done so unbelievably well. And we have a working solar powered forge and you can build it for about 1500 to 2000 pounds. And it doesn't belong to me. You know, we accepted public funds to build this machine. Um, even if we hadn't, I think I'd still have the same viewpoint on it. I don't want to own the rights to a solar powered forge. Effectively, if you think about what it is, it's a it's a machine that can generate high temperatures. So what other processes could this be used for? It doesn't have to just be rescuing aluminium cans. You could be turning agricultural waste into biochar. You could be recycling plastics. You could be do all, doing all kinds of things. And we thought it was really important to open source that and not own it. So mm. public funds, public good, and we should be sharing the designs on that in the future. But but I think from a circular economy perspective, the thing that's really exciting is, exciting is that we're taking 
these aluminium cans, which yes, hand on heart, of course they can be recycled in the UK, but they're not being recycled in the UK. We have a littering problem. We don't have a deposit system. We don't have a national waste mm. strategy. There's 16 million can aluminium cans as litter, but there's 2 billion aluminium cans, which is about 20% of the total, that go in the wrong bin and never get recycled. Mm. We've got a problem with cherishing this raw material. So for me, the whole point of the project is to inspire people to love aluminium, to turn it into something really incredible, and also probably not to sell the products. So I think the first thing we're going to release are standalone cast aluminium items. And people will buy them, but they will buy them in the understanding that when they don't want them, they have to come back to us to be remelted in our solar forge and remade again into something new. And that that is that's really important to me because with a when you've got a material that has the potential for pure, true, 100% circularity, that's the business model you have to put behind it. Mm. And that reminds me of something uh, Professor Walter Stahl was talking about a few months ago. Um, we did something for UNESCO together and he was talking about renting molecules and how that could be really important for developing economies who have all these really precious raw materials but mm. once they're sold at quite a low value because they've not been transformed into anything, that's the value gone. And if they rented molecules, so they never gave away ownership of, you know, those metals and minerals, yes. um, then they could, you know, get them back afterwards or have a, an income forever. Um, yes. And just going, just going back to the 3D printer um, or the, 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 the process of turning the cans into a material are you transforming them in, into a powder for 3d printing or into a liquid because the metal 3d no, printing no we're going has straight evolved. we go to liquid yeah. yeah we're doing casting yeah so yeah. it's okay. just that if you if we wanted to do something that was cost effective do that's that that could be duplicated in countries all over the world where this waste is mm. and it could be used to you know generate incomes and and really unlock the circular economy at a very local level mm. Um, we knew the machine had to be cheap and easy to run. And that's, yeah, so it, it, you shred the, you crush the cans, then you melt the cans, cast, sand cast, the outcome. Right, so simple. Brilliant. Yeah, amazing. Um, I'll make sure um, my colleague, Peter Desmond, who's co-founder of the African Circular Economy Network, make sure he listens to this, this episode because I'm sure that I'll give him some some great ideas for Brilliant. knowledge to sh knowledge to share. Um and you mentioned one other project that you've kicked off during the pandemic um, and that involved moving to a farm and then um, looking to do something better with your water systems. Yes. So the key reason for us to move to a farm is that we felt quite, quite strongly that we needed to be a regenerative business. And one of the most accessible ways to do that is in a agricultural setting regenerative agriculture has so much potential to help us you know fight climate change and be resilient and it took us a long time to find a farm we could afford in the southeast of the uk they're certainly a premium good um but we did find one and it has an unbelievable um you know it has an unbelievable south-facing chalk slope so the, the first assessment that we made was what should we grow here? What should our project be? 
And we decided um, after looking at the soil and everything going for us that it, that it was going to be a, a, a wine a winemaking business. And wine involves often a significant waste of water. And we think that also in the future, you know, we're in an area of water stress. We didn't think it was going to be appropriate for us to be extracting from the aquifer or polluting the groundwater with our um, with our waste water. So because even if you did an old school septic tank, there's still this overflow that you just, you know, you depend on the minerals in the soil to clean for you. And we wanted to do something world class. So we have installed rainwater harvesting ponds at the top of the site. All of the buildings from the farm yard channel into those. So that's our freshwater supply. And then the water goes through the, all the wastewater generated on the site goes into a constructed wetland, which we built. The day we got planning permission, we basically built that. Sorry, there was a phone ringing, but someone will answer it. Um, and we, we have a centrifugal force-based totally passive system that all of the sludge from our wastewater, so this, this, this sewage mm -hmm. element, goes into a composting chamber that we filled with tiger worms and uh, sawdust occasionally. And that will turn our humanure, I guess, into vermicast, which is great. But the liquids all go into this constructed wetland, which we worked with a, a permaculture designer and microbiologist who is, you know, just the, he, did, he, he he's the one who come, came up with the idea for these constructed wetlands. He's been installing for 20 years. They're brilliant. And we'll have this incredibly biodiverse habitat that treats our wastewater. And it will treat it to a higher standard than pretty much any wastewater in the country is being treated. The overflow from that system goes into another um, uh, basically wildlife pond. And then when it's windy, that goes gets gets shifted back up to the top of the site. Right. Filtered again. It's it's at that point drinking water and 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 the cycle continues. So we will we've taken basically a very dry landscape and we've added water and we're going to be adding more water and that just will make it resilient through time. But it's also really interesting when you consider that idea of renting molecules, because that's effectively what we're doing here is that we are, we don't own the water that comes here, but we are making sure that the molecules of water that decide to land here from the sky get treated like gold and they never leave. <laughs> so, so actually, um, we're not really, we're, I don't know. It's like, a, it's a very symbiotic relationship here. Yeah, I guess it's it's reminding me. I'm just just finishing uh, a really fantastic book, uh, "Less Is More" by Jason Hickel, mm. um, about degrowth. But I'm on the last section, and he's talking about indigenous cultures and how they, you know, treat treat everything as if it's precious and to be restored and and cherished and enriched. Mm. That's that's how they see the human role in the in the system. It's to, mm. um, you know, help everything else to flourish. So yeah. it's that kind of principle, isn't it? That, you, you know, you're taking, taking what you're given naturally and making sure that uh, whatever, whatever happens to it, it ends up as a, as a sort of better output, both for your farm and for all the nature on and around yeah, it's, the farm. It's, it's really, it's really, it's a, it's, it's, it's such an obvious idea. And, I, you know, I was just at an event last week in Bristol. It was called the Blue Earth Summit. And Tim Smith from the Eden Project was giving a speech. And he was talking about the young people at Youth Cop, which, which took place. 
I think just last week, and how as a group they came up with the idea that the those countries that were going to be most impacted by climate change should be the countries to write the rules mm. as a, in, in terms of what we're going to follow as a pathway for change. Mm. So those countries that are like the, the Maldives and you know the, the, the island states, they should be the ones setting the carbon tax, setting mm. the targets. And 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 of course it's it's a it's brilliantly rational and perfect. We should be making the rules based on those who are going to suffer the most. We should be thinking about in the in the in the example you were giving uh, of nature as something that doesn't belong to us but is there to run alongside us and our grandchildren and our grandchildren's grandchildren. So how dare how dare we treat it with such disrespect? Mm. Um, there's such obvious ideas, and yet you know, our entire capitalist system is runs anti-parallel. Yeah, that. yeah, exactly. And that's I won't I won't go on too much about the book, but it has been one of those kind of real um, eye-opening reads. Even things that I thought I knew a bit about, he kind of digs in a bit deeper to to explain more about the why of capitalism. Mm. Um, and explode a lot of the the myths and the things that we're kind of taking for granted because that you know that's what the people who benefit from it um, want, want to happen. Um, so that kind of brings me on to I was listening to your interview recently on uh, Can Marketing Save the Planet, um, a, a newish podcast, and um, I really enjoyed hearing you talk about the issues with the mass market fashion sector um mm. and maybe that's maybe that's a good segue in into that um because oft, often when you hear people talk about uh organic food or artisan products or whatever there's a criticism that well this is just for those people who've got enough enough money um mm. and um you know what about those people who can't afford very much so perhaps you can you can yeah, kind of give I mean, us your world, in, your your view on that. Yeah, this is in, this is incredibly important, and and I will, and I feel have quite strong views on it. You know, I'll never apologize for the prices that our items are available at. Are our bags expensive? Yep, they are. Our bags cost what it costs to make a bag. If you're going to make an environmental good, if you're going to make it durable, and if the people who make it are paid well, and if the you know the facilities that you use to make it in are wonderful facilities to be in. I don't think it's appropriate that someone in another country should subsidize the cheapness here in the UK. I don't think it's appropriate for an ecosystem to subsidize cheap food. So we have to get to grips with the fact that food and fashion are too cheap. And that, that the, the, the although we, we love the fact that that there's a bargain available to the UK customer, it comes at the expense of someone else's life somewhere else and of the environment somewhere else. And it's it's not just somewhere else as in outside of the country. I mean, we had modern slavery issues coming up with Boohoo in the UK during the pandemic. We have got to understand that if a t-shirt costs two pounds 50, it's just exploitation of the environment and people in the supply chain. Because mm. two pounds fifty, you can't do anything for two pounds fifty. Exactly. So yeah, we 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 have to really stop that. And 
And yes, I think everyone needs to be paid more mm. so that we can afford these goods. But also we need to grow our food in, in regenerative agriculture farms where the food is more nutrient dense mm. and, that- and where you're you're getting more nutrients for the same for the same price as as you would be buying like a, a a tomato grown under chemical warfare conditions so we've got to start cherishing each other and cherishing the soil and that is going to have a cost but if we don't pay that cost then well then we'll have floods and then we'll have uh earth you know we'll, we'll have huge uh, movements of of people who are migrating for a better life. I remember listening to an incredible podcast with a, an American human rights campaigner, and she was saying how it didn't make sense for the for America to have basically hollowed out the economies of the south of, of South America, and then not expect those people to arrive at the border demanding a better life. If you if you create such horrific um substandard opportunities elsewhere those people will want to move and and they have every right to want to do that so we've got to get a grip on how we treat each other and how we treat the environment and we have to pay be willing to pay more for those things or be willing to invest our time more in those things Mm. so it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to cost more in in cash it might mean that you need to get together with a community group and take over an allotment and grow some of your own food in your own time. It might mean that you have to learn how to sew. It might mean a lot of things like that, but we, we, we don't really consider, we don't really consider these things to have a real value because they've been too cheap. And I mean, water's too cheap as well. Mm. And these things will all go up in price because the, the laws will change. You know, we've got great ecocide legislation coming in. We've got, um, do have great modern slavery legislation. We're just not enforcing it. It would be really fascinating to me if items that arrived um, at UK Customs were simply were simply sent back because because we actually decided to uh, to follow through with the modern slavery legislation that we've got. Mm. If those kinds of items just couldn't get to market, we would have a different marketplace. Mm. Yeah. And I think maybe the change has got to come from all of us, you know, voting mm. with our either voting with our wallets because you choose to buy the right thing or you choose not to buy something and invest a little bit of time in telling the company why you're not buying from them. Mm. It feels as if the the conversations have been there for been around for long enough with with governments and with businesses and they're only going as far as they think they need to to kind of you know pacify the activists a little bit more until the next Mm. um the next scandal or something but and also it's you know prices worked up it would be the best way to eliminate waste in both of these systems yeah so we have an enormous amount of waste in the fashion system you know you've got companies like h&m which were reported to have four billion pounds of unsold stock just floating around in warehouses. You can't tell me that that's not a waste of time and materials. Mm. It is. You've got, you know, whatever the percentage is of our food that's wasted, not just in the supply chain, but also in our fridges because Mm. it doesn't, it doesn't actually get consumed. So if we, if, if it was suddenly quite, quite a bit more expensive, those wastes would go. inefficiencies would be eliminated yeah and i think the 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 impulse buys particularly around fashion would Mm. also um be reduced because now you'd be 
considering much more carefully how you choose to spend your money, not just thinking, well, you know, if I don't like it after I've worn it once, it doesn't matter because it only cost, you know, five mm. pounds for a for a dress or something awful. So, Cressy, coming coming back to the the circular economy, what have you struggled with, or what surprised you in the in the process of building Elvis and Cressa? Because you've been going for probably longer than most other circular economy startups now. I think I think it's I think we we talk too much about struggle sometimes. You know, it's a it's a privilege to run this business the way that we do. We get to solve problems as our MO. It's what we do every day. Even even when we were tiny, we would be able to be rescuing fire hose gram by gram and that felt fantastic. Even at the end of our first year where we, you know, our, our accountant said that we did make a loss. Uh, you know, I thought, you know, we still had money left in the bank account at the end of the year. We had 134 pounds and gave that all to the firefighters charity. That felt spectacularly good because for me, the circular economy can't just be the, the flow of goods and materials in, in a perpetual cycle, whether that be, you know, the, the chemical cycle or the recycling cycle or the organic cycle. It has to be the flow of capital too. So that's why I, 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 you know, I think I talk about cost and how things have to increase, but also our 50% donation because we have a rising inequality as a problem too. And I want to tackle that too. I want to tackle all the problems all the time. And I, I think that we're well poised as a business to do that. And the longer we stay around, the more people find us interesting, the more people can't argue with me that this is just some sort of, you know, pastime. It's not a pastime when it employs 25 people. It's it's a real bona fide, profitable business. And it is a privilege to run. It's a it's a joy to be a part of. You know, we get to we get to give money away every year, more money away. And that's that's just feels amazing. So I don't I yeah, we could talk, we have the same struggles as any other business. All businesses have challenges. There's ups, there's downs. You know, we, we have maybe a diff, more difficulty in terms of communications, particularly in the beginning when people just did not get fire hoses, the luxury good. We had problems with manufacturing. Those have largely been overcome because we started our own manufacturing. Um, but it's you know, the joy over, is, is, is the overwhelming feeling here. It's, it's not the... Um, yeah, it's not the challenge. Yeah, and I love that phrase you, you mentioned at the start of that about problem solving um, being the MO modus operandi. I think that's mm. that's just such a great ethos. And if you were going to share a top tip for another business, either wanting to go circular or start something circular, what, what would be your number one tip? Well, the, the number one tip is to start with, with a problem. Don't start thinking, oh, I want to come up with a, a circular. There are enough problems around. Definitely start with one of those. But also you've just got to constantly be thinking about death, the death of a product and the chaos of a consumer. Because if anything can go wrong at the end of a product's life, it will. So you have to build into your business model how you're going to get it back, how you're going to retain those molecules. Uh, you have to, you can't, Think about how you're going to make it, how you're going to market it, how you're going to sell it. You have to think about its death first. Mm. And that that brings me back to something that you very kindly allowed me to share 
in the Circular Economy Handbook after I'd seen your presentation at the Institute for Manufacturing that you had a, um, well, I think it was a, a napkin, wasn't it, that you took a photo of and it went up as a slide. <coughs> Unfortunately, I wasn't allowed by the publisher to put the, the, the handwritten crumpled photo <laughs> into the book, so I had to um, make it into a PowerPoint slide. But you had your description of um, kind of key criteria for the perfect product. So it'd be great if you could share some of those. And um, perhaps as it's now, you know, s seven years on from that, mm. is, is there anything that you've added to that or anything you'd change? I think what's fascinating about, about it is that we still use, we basically, you know, I, I still have that, that slip of paper. Um, and I still, in pretty much every presentation I give, use that slide because it is, it is to me, the benchmark for any new good. So the, the key elements for us are, is that it has to be designed for deconstruction. So, i.e. designed with death in mind. And for us, that meant it would be circular. We thought it had to be component-based, like Lego. And the reason I said like Lego is because everybody gets what Lego is. So it, it, it makes it suddenly a knowable thing. You know, how are you going to build that house? I'm going to build it like Lego. How are you going to build that plane? I'm going to build it like Lego. Then, then people sort of start to think, yep, that's what design for deconstruction means. We also felt like it needed to be swappable, shareable, engaging, because we were, we were talking, you know, we don't work in the B2B space, we work in the B2C space. So we wanted this to be fun for people. And we wanted it to, to, we wanted other people to feel like it belonged to them. Because crucially, there's been all these studies done around the longevity of items. And if people feel engaged in the co-creation of an item, they're much more likely to hang on to it for the long term. So that was the, I suppose the last thing on that slide was something about it having a life of its own. And this is really, this is really wild, I suppose, especially in the design world or in the creative sector where, where people revere designers and, and how genius and wonderful they are. Well, in the circular economy world, what you, if you design like this for deconstruction, what you're saying from day one is that someone else at some other time in the future may be able to do something better than this with this than I can do right now. It's not about the designer anymore. It's not about ego. It's just about enablement and engagement. And the only other thing I would add to this slide really is that everything has to be regenerative now because it isn't enough just to be sustainable at the, at the very low, low place we are with respect to people and climate. It, we need to be giving back more than we're taking now. Yeah, I think that's that's incredibly important. And as well as that, there's the, the kind of um, just misuse and, and meaninglessness of the word sustainability because it's being greenwashed so, mm. so much. So, Cressy, you've, you've talked a lot about your kind of ethos and... and um, you know the importance of key principles for the business. So, is do you have a um, a personal value or a, or a value that that's part of the business that you'd like to share with other people that you think moves us towards a better world? Yeah, and it's um, you know, I'm nicking it from my grandmother because she, I, I really, I'm, I, I keep trying to remember the conversation and what we were talking about 
but perhaps it was not important what we were talking about. But she said to me kind of as an offhand comment one day when I was maybe 12 or 13, if you're capable, you're responsible. And I think about that every single day. If you see an injustice in the world, you can't be a bystander, you have to be an upstander. If you see a problem that you think you can tackle, then you have to tackle it. We can't wait for the problems that we're facing, particularly with respect to climate change, to be solved by someone else, somewhere else. Everybody's gotta be doing this all the time in all the actions that they take in their life. I was, um, I saw an article, and I have to go and read this now because I just saw the title of it, that actually we talk too much about our carbon footprint and we need to talk about our carbon shadow because our shadow is much bigger than our footprint. And the shadow is actually all the decisions you make, all the things you decide to spend your time on. Who do you work for? What does that mm. company believe in? What is that company achieving? What are you doing with your time and your talent? What organizations are you associated with? What decisions are they making? How are, how are you with your friends? Are you encouraging them to try local seasonal um, plant-based recipes occasionally? Not all the time, but you know, occasionally. Are you talking to them about the UN's diet for climate change? Are you, are you making your own purchasing decisions in a sustainable way? Are you actively traveling less? Particularly when it comes to plane travel, you know, all of the, all of the impact of the million decisions that you make every day are enormous. Mm. It's not just the big ticket ones like buying an electric car versus a, versus a petrol car. There's so much impact we can all have. Mm. Yeah, that's that's fantastic, and um, yeah, I think I'll be quoting you in. Um, in something I'm doing next next week for the um, United Nations Circular Economy course. Um, mm, nice. So the I'm do, doing a, a webinar uh, with Sandra Goldmark, the author of Fixation, who I interviewed on mm. the, on the podcast. So we're both doing a slot on how people can be more circular in their own lives. Um, mm. So yeah, I'm, I've kind of called it circular change maker. So um, yeah, Incredible. if it's okay, I'll I'll quote you on that. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> so, Cressy, who would you recommend as a future guest for the program? I would definitely um, recommend Joe Chidley from Beauty Kitchen because she she in every conversation you you have what, that that she's a part of whatever whether it be an, a private online forum or a panel discussion or. She t she talks about rinse, refill, repeat, rinse, refill, repeat. She sells um, soaps and shampoos and it comes in stainless steel packaging that can be rinsed, refilled <laughs> and you repeat. And it's a simple message and it's very effective and the products are good. And not only is she did she pioneer this for Beauty Kitchen, but Beauty Kitchen is sharing this system with other companies. She's a energetic and generous person she gets the circular economy fundamentally and she's built a business that is succeeding in that in this space because she's in this space it's it's not a challenge for her it's it's again it's the mo of what she does and it's why they're winning mm. and what was her surname again joe chidley chidley okay brilliant i'll look her up that sounds fascinating and cressy yeah. how can people find out more about elvis and cressy and, and what you're doing and get in touch 
Well, you can come to our website, which is www.elvisandcressy.com, and that's A-N-D. My name's a bit tricky to spell, so it's K-R-E-S-S-E. Um, and all of our social media handles are Elvis and Cressy, so at Elvis and Cressy. Um, or you can come to see our beautiful constructed wetland in North Kent. We're just outside Faversham. And literally anyone who's come here since the 10th of August, when, when, when it was complete, that's the first place I take them. I was like, do you want to see something cool? Even if it's a postman, I was like, do you want to see where our sewage goes? It's amazing. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a very proud of our first big infrastructure project. Yeah, I can imagine. And um, yeah, it sounds, sounds fascinating. I did a permaculture mm. course um, uh, when we first moved up here. So about 2012, 2013. And yeah, just some, some really brilliant concepts and design principles. And we should be applying it to every aspect of business as well, shouldn't we? Yeah. So that's that's fantastic. I could sit here and ask you more questions for for hours because it's there's just been such fascinating conversation, and I really love the ethos of the Elvis and Cressa business, and I look forward to finding out what happens over the next few years. So, Cressy, thank you very much. No, thanks a lot. Me too. I can't wait for the next few years. I so enjoyed that conversation. Cressy seems driven by a clear why. She sees problem solving as a creative tool and uses the power of making a positive difference to fuel herself and others. The business model, rescue, transform, donate, is both simple and powerful and speaks to the purpose of the business. Elvis and Cressy looks for niche problems, those that present difficult challenges and that might need collaboration. That could mean teaming up with other companies or with researchers to work out how to solve this particular problem. The focus is on designing a system, not a product. I loved Cressy's commitment to open sourcing their solutions so that these breakthroughs can be easily scaled up around the world. I can still picture Cressy on stage at the Institute for Manufacturing back in 2015 and remember feeling so inspired by the story she told. Today, we discussed one of the slides she used in that presentation with her key criteria for a perfect product. It should be engaging, swappable, shareable, ideally have a do-it-yourself DIY element and be able to have a life of its own. In other words, after you've finished with it, someone else will want to use it. It should also be designed with its eventual death in mind, so designed for deconstruction and that probably means it'll be component-based, similar to Lego. Cressy kindly allowed me to use that image in a Circular Economy handbook, and I've, incl I've included it in the show notes for this episode. And finally, I think we should all adopt the value that Cressy shared, to be upstanders, not bystanders. If we all did that, we could really kickstart a circular, regenerative and fair economic system. In Rethink News, I've been doing a writing sprint this week, though I haven't made the progress I hoped to. I'm remembering how hard it was to write my first book, wrestling with structures, trying to come up with frameworks and clear descriptions, and keeping track of what, you, what I've mentioned in other parts of the book. Last week, I mentioned that I'm also working on a four-week online challenge aimed at businesses that want to get started on the circular economy. 
for the course, I'll use parts of the book I'm writing now to help people in businesses who want to understand how the circular economy can help their business become more future fit and to work out where to start. There'll be short videos and daily challenges. Before I launch it out to the wider world, I'm planning a free beta version starting in January 2022 for a few people from small and medium businesses. So if that sounds right for you, please get in touch on LinkedIn or email hello at rethinkglobal.info. So that's another episode of the Circular Economy podcast in the bag. Thank you to our guests this week, Cressy Wesling of Elvis and Cressy. And as always, thank you for listening. You can find out more and follow Cressy Wesling on social media. Thank you to Nicole Rudolph, our new research associate, for making this episode possible. And as usual, you can check out the other links we mentioned in the show notes at circuareconomypodcast.com. If you're looking for episodes on a particular circular economy strategy or for a market sector or specific countries, check out our interactive podcast index. There's a link on the podcast homepage at www.circulareconomypodcast.com and every episode includes an interview transcript. Don't forget that you can help make the circular economy happen too with the choices you make at work and in your everyday life. Buying pre-used, keeping what you have for longer, repairing it and making sure it has another life. And you can help spread the word. Talk about the circular economy and help other people find this podcast by leaving us a rating and a review on your podcast app. Email a screenshot of your review to podcast at rethinkglobal.info and we'll give you a shout out on the show. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one and two or buy the new edition of my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, competitive and sustainable business, which takes you through the concepts and practicalities with lots of real examples from all around the world. The Circular Economy podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, helping you succeed with circular. You can find information on our talks, workshops, coaching and advice and circular economy resources at www.rethinkglobal.info or connect with me, Catherine Wheatman, on LinkedIn. If you like what you're hearing, please hit subscribe and we'll see you next time.